Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent the Lord Jesus, that he laid down his life, that he set us free. And Lord, we pray that you would make us people whose hearts and minds and ambitions and efforts at innovation and efficiency, Lord, make it where everything is all pointed in the same direction. Give us this sense of fullness, Lord, where we feel like all of our energies and all of our philosophical understanding of the world and all of our deepest commitments and everything that we are is pointed at the ultimate end of your glory. And we ask that you would make us thoroughly convinced by the power of your word. And we pray that the Spirit would bring it about in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the title of my uh, address here is something to do with biblical theology. So I want to start with um, an explanation of what that phrase biblical theology means. That's a phrase that that means a lot to me, that I uh, take for granted, but that I understand is not all that attractive. It's not not exactly a sexy phrase. Uh, So I want to tell you what I mean by biblical theology. Uh, Biblical theology, in my opinion, there are all kinds of ways to explain this, is not my theology is more biblical than yours. You know, when when we appeal to biblical theology, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying when we talk about biblical theology, I think, ought to be something like this. I want to understand the perspective of the biblical authors, and then I want to embrace their perspective. And when I refer to their perspective, I'm, I'm sort of getting at their worldview. I want to understand the worldview of the biblical authors, and then whatever their worldview is, I want to, I want to adopt it. And then that provokes the question, what comprises a worldview? Well, a worldview is going to consist of an overarching story, what, what you might refer to as a meta-narrative. And, and understanding this is important because all of us understand our lives in the context of a story. I mean, when I was a kid, the story was glory was to be found on the baseball field or the basketball court. And achieving the glory meant winning the state championship. And that's what I lived for. That's what I gave myself to. I trained for it. I worked at it. I did everything that I could to accomplish it. And some things the Lord just doesn't build us for. And you've and you got you to embrace that too. But, but we all interpret our lives in the context of a story. So we'll come back to this idea. And then I want to argue that out of the big story are going to flow things that we hold to be true, ultimate things that we see as, as absolutes And those are going to line up with the story. They're going to correspond to our understanding of where the world came from, what's gone wrong in it, what's being done to fix it, and what's ultimately going to be the outcome of those efforts to fix the world. So a big story, truths that flow out of that story, we might call them doctrines or something like this, and then there are going to be behaviors and cultures and acts of worship. That, that line up with that big story. And all of that, uh, the, your big story, your truths that flow out of the story, how you think you ought to live in response to this, this narrative that explains the world and who you are and what this place is, and then um, how you ought to respond in worship, all of this I would refer to as biblical theology. 
because what we're getting at is the perspective of the biblical authors, and we're trying to embrace their perspective, their worldview. Now, before we go into the perspective of the the biblical authors, I want to give you some alternative stories. Um, And I want to start with Greco-Roman mythology. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Zeus and Poseidon and all the rest, but but you may not be familiar with, we're talking about man man and woman here this, this morning, this weekend, you may not be familiar with the story of where women came from, according to Greco-Roman mythology. Uh, the way it goes, uh, according to um, this, this author named Hesiod in his poem called Works and Days, which, which really explains the origin of all things, or at least it purports to explain the origin of all things. Everything started with, with Gaia, and if you are familiar with Greek at all, you know that Gaia is related to the, the Greek word gay, which means earth or, or land or something like this. So Gaia was there, and what happened is Gaia mother earth, so to speak, parthenogenically, which means by means of virgin birth, which means there was no one involved. Gaia produced Uranus. And again, if you know any Greek, you know Uranus means heaven or sky. So the earth just produces sky, according to this creation account. And if we ask, well, where did Gaia come from? They've got no answer for us. If we ask, how was it that Gaia produced Sky, again, there's no answer for us. Well, then earth and sky get together like a man and woman in marriage, and, and, and through their intimacy, through their intercourse, they produce chronos. And chronos, chronology, you know, this has to do with time. So what you've got here is uh, matter and space producing somehow time. And then, and then chronos ultimately overcomes uranos, Time overcomes space or sky, and, and he eventually begets Zeus. And then in the course of, of the unfolding of all of these events, uh, these gods in the Greco-Roman mythology, all of, everything I'm telling you here is relevant, I promise. These gods in Greco-Roman mythology, they are not benevolent, which means they are not good. They don't like people, and they don't want good things for people. And so they don't want people, humans, and at this point it's just men, they don't want the men to have fire. Why is that? Well, they don't like men. They don't like men. They don't want good things for men. They don't care about them. There's nothing benevolent in them. And why is that? Well, I think it's ultimately because the Greeks and the Romans have constructed their gods in their own image. And they don't like people. And they're not benevolent, and they're not generous, and they're not giving, and so they, they suppose that the gods are the same way. Well, one of the titans, this guy Prometheus, maybe you've heard this story, Prometheus steals fire from the gods and gives it to man. And the, God, the other gods are angry with Prometheus, and they're angry with mankind for now possessing fire. And so what the other gods do is they come up with a way to punish man because man now has fire. And they all come together and they decide on a course of action. And what they do is they shape a maiden form, lovely, attractive, fetching for the man. And then they put into her a demon spirit. And they give woman to man as a curse, as a judgment, as an act of revenge for the fact that man now has fire. If that's your origin story, and in Greco-Roman mythology, that's your origin, that's where women come from. 
If you, if you start asking questions and you get down to the story, that's where women come from. If that's your origin story, how do you think people's behaviors and treatments toward women are going to, to flow out of that understanding of where people come from? It's going to be logical, isn't it? And, and I think we should expect to see exactly what you see in the Greco-Roman world. You should see sexual abuse. You should see slavery. You should see all kinds, all kinds of ways in which women are disregarded, demeaned, abused, and taken advantage of. And it fits right in with their story. Let me give you an, another alternative narrative, a competing myth. According to this one, there was an infinitely dense particle with no mass that suddenly, for some reason, unbeknownst to all of us, began to expand very rapidly. It expanded so rapidly that we can only refer to this as an explosion, a big bang. And then out of this massive explosion, somehow came all of this potential for order and life and, and the, even ultimately the world that we live in because the right proteins and the right amino acids somehow got together. And I don't know if there was a lightning flash. I mean, the scientists, you, you push them for an answer on how this happened and you get the same answer to the question of where did Gaia come from? Where did Gaia come from? Crickets, you know, no response. You can hear the silence. How did amino acids and proteins suddenly come to life? Crickets, no response. We don't know anything about, more about that than we know about how Gaia produced Uranus. Nothing, no answer. But then, once life came into being, then everything began to evolve, and suddenly, you have these eyeballs that we all possess. And, and, and these things work so perfectly with the universe in which we live. And you have this phenomenal miracle of, of childbirth and, and human reproduction. I mean, it's, it's stunning. The... the, the the things that have to come together for man and woman to produce offspring. I mean, it's, it's amazing, and all of that apparently came from a, a big bang. Well, I think that the myths are pretty well equal, but in this second myth that I'm telling you about, which is one largely adopted by many of our contemporaries, in this myth, there is no moral authority. There is no ultimate power in the universe who has decreed what right and wrong are. And as a result... Your standards of decency, your standards of human conduct, those are nothing more than evolving standards, gradually developing ideas. And so what's going on among our contemporaries who embrace this mythology is what you would expect. They, they say there are no absolute truths, there are no absolute standards of morality. We are nothing but evolved chemical reactions and elaborate systems of electric uh, pulses that fire through our bodies and through our minds. With both of these stories, what I want to say is, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it because the mechanistic, naturalistic explanation of all, all of life is just not enough. You, you might be able to account for many things in the world through these things, but there are these gaps, aren't there? There are these, these mushy spaces between people, things like emotions that we feel. And we don't want the emotions that we feel to boil down to just chemical reactions in our brains. Even the people that embrace this idea, they don't want that. We don't want 
our response to music to be nothing more than an evolved reaction to different sounds that somehow kept us uh, able to survive. We don't want it to be merely that. Even the people that embrace it don't want that to account for everything. So, so their, their scientific attempt, their mythological attempt is not sufficient. Now, there may be other, there may be other possibilities, but what I want to do this, this morning is now take you into the Bible's account for where we came from and where man and woman came from, and then I want to trace through this big story of, of, of life that the Bible gives to us, and I want to try to uh, place or locate humanity in the Bible's big story and give you a, bab- a biblical theology of, of man and woman in the image of God. So I would invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm, I'm not going to take the time to work through the first 26 verses here. I just want to say that, that the Bible asserts, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you have a God like this, if you have a God with the wisdom and the power to bring all things into being out of nothing, then I think that you have a God whose intelligence and power and wisdom has the potential to explain the gaps, to explain the dynamics that we sense between people, whether we're talking about love or, or the, the poetry that comes out of people or the music that comes out of people. You've got a, a valid theory that accounts for all the evidence in the way that these other myths, myths fail to, to do. And then, once we get down to the creation of man and woman, Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And we don't have time to, um, to explore this fully, but uh, the author of this passage, Moses, uh, the author of this passage also authored the account of the instructions for the tabernacle and then the building of the tabernacle over in Exodus 25 through 40. And uh, I think that it's demonstrable that what Moses has done is he has connected his account of the creation of the world to his account of the, 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 the instructions for the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. And the reason he connected these things is because what Moses is presenting God doing when he builds creation Moses is presenting God creating a cosmic temple, a temple in which the divine one, the the, the deity, would take up residence and and would fill ultimately, just like what happens when when, uh, they build the tabernacle. Remember, the cloud of God's glory and presence fills that tabernacle. And it's like what God is saying is, this tabernacle that you're building, this is just a small-scale replica of the whole world. And what I'm doing when I fill that tabernacle with my glory is what I'm going to do in all of creation. That's what this world is for. Same thing happens when they build the temple. And then I think the biblical authors understand this. And so you see reflections of it all through the rest of the Bible. For instance, in in Psalm 78, 69, just one reference, uh, the psalmist says, uh, you built your sanctuary like the high heavens like the earth which you founded beneath. So you you hear the comparison there. You built the sanctuary, the temple, 
like the heavens and the earth. Meaning, the temple is just a a sort of small-scale replica of all creation. Now, to to get at what I think is going on here in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Let me me remind you of ways that um, this word image is used later in the Old Testament. Um, You shall not make an image of the Lord your God, right? And then let me invite you to think about what it is that the idolaters do. The idolaters, the people who worship other gods, who have other creation stories, what they do is they build a temple that for them too, I mean, you can, you can research this, uh, the, in, in the ancient Near East, temples represented the cosmos. So, so that's what temples symbolized in the ancient world. They, they symbolized the world, all creation. And in these, these replicas of the world, you know what they did? They placed an image, a likeness of their God. And that image and likeness of their God represented the presence, the authority, the reign of their God in the temple. And that was meant to depict this God that we worship. He's Lord here. And in the true story, that's the knockoff. All all these false religions, all of these failed mythologies, they're just cheap imitations of the true story. In the true story, God didn't take a block of wood and carve it, or uh, a, a sculpture from stone, or, or some melted down metal and pour it into some kind of a mold. No, in the true story, what God did was He built a living, breathing, worshiping, thinking image and likeness of Himself. And He placed the image and likeness of Himself into the cosmic temple for the same reasons that the idolaters did to represent His presence, to bring His authority to bear, to execute His reign in His realm. That's what's going on in Genesis 1.26 when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Man and woman are placed in God's cosmic temple to rule in God's realm. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. Do you know what this means? This means that from the moment that God creates man and woman, His intention is for them to bring His character to bear in all creation over all the earth. Which means that from the moment God puts man on the earth, His intention is to fill the world with His glory. Because that's what happens when God shows up. That's what happens when God's character becomes known in God's realm. God's glory is experienced. That's why people exist in the world. Over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's not that there were men and then women were produced as a curse or a judgment on man, no. And it's not that somehow, in in ways that we cannot even begin to explain or imagine, these things just sort of happened to develop. I mean, I just don't find that at all plausible. That, that, that things so sophisticated, things so perfectly fitted together could just evolve. Mutants die. It's, it's impossible to conceive of evolution being true. 
at least on, on, this, on this massive scale that, that it's proposed. In this account, God created male and female in His image and likeness. Let me add this too. If, if you take evolution and you push it through to its logical conclusions, do you know what happens to human dignity? Do you know what happens to human freedom? You can forget about those. You have no responsibility. You have no dignity. Why would you have dignity? You're, you're just an evolved conglomerations of chemical processes and reactions and electrical pulses. You have no dignity. You have, you have no greater status than the animals. You have no freedom. You're not really making choices. They're just things happening between your synapses and neurons and, and, and the proteins and the amino acids and all the rest that can all be ex explicated, according to them, scientifically. You have no dignity. You have no responsibility. You have no freedom. Forget it. And so why do the people who embrace this story continue to act as though we do have dignity, authority, responsibility, and freedom? It's because they can't live with their own conclusions. And if you start pushing them on these things, they're not going to have an explanation of how they can reconcile these things unless you count these crazy philosophers who come up with this idea of, a, of some evolving world spirit. I mean, it's, it, it's, you talk about being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The, <laughs> these things are just totally unbelievable. I mean, it's like they go full, full bore Looney Tunes on us. They have no rational explanation and they cannot live with their conclusions. And then when you push them to a certain place, all they can do is shout you down. And, and that results in what the Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor refers to as the extraordinary inarticulacy of this generation. We are, our, our contemporaries are extraordinarily inarticulate, meaning they can't explain the world. They can't explain their beliefs. They can't account for the way that things are. And so all they do is shout louder. All they do is, is bully and try to silence those who oppose and reject their, their perspective. And that brings us to verse 28, which is such a remarkable verse in light of, particularly if you, if you contrast it with the Greco-Roman account, where the gods are angry that Prometheus has stolen fire from them and given it to humanity. I think for the Greco-Roman uh, adherents of that mythology, or, or what they've got is not a problem of evil. You know, sometimes Christians are confronted with this so-called problem of evil. If God is all good and if God is all powerful, why, is, why are there bad things in the world? Well, I think if, if you're uh, somebody who adheres to Greco-Roman mythology, what you've got is a problem of good. If the gods are the way that you talk about them, why is there any good in the world? We don't have that problem. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. God creates man and woman in his own image and likeness, and then it's like a father with this radiant face exulting over his child, speaking good things over his child. That's the world that we live in. God blessed them. There is this goodness and love and benevolence and joy flowing from the divine creator into those who bear his image and likeness. And look at what he says to them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
It's the first command. Now, uh, marriage is presupposed here. It's introduced over in chapter 2. Lord willing, if we get time, I don't know if we're going to have time. Moments are slipping away from me. If we get time, if we, we, if we get there, we'll see the introduction of marriage into creation. The first thing that God tells man and woman to do is for them to unite in marriage and produce offspring. In our culture, uh, look, 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 I've got to take you there. Look over at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so then he provokes his awareness for his need for the woman, and then he makes the woman, and they come together prior to the introduction of sin, prior to the rebellion against God, prior to the judgment spoken on the world in, in response to human sin. Marriage is there at creation. In our culture, uh, just yesterday, we were, Denny and I were having lunch uh, with a couple of guys who used to be with us out in Louisville, and, and our friend Johnson was commenting on how, how, how unfamily friendly California is. And California is sort of the, the leading edge of our culture, and he was talking about how uh, children are seen as a nuisance here. And I think if we were to get to it, marriage is seen as a nuisance too. People in our culture, I'm not just picking on Californians, <laughs> uh, people in our culture, they don't want to get married because they don't want to get tied down. It's going to limit my upward mobility. It's going to limit my freedom of where I can go work. It's going to limit my freedom of, of where I can live and what I do with my money. And so I'm going to delay marriage. I'm going to push it off. God is saying at the beginning, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to give them this good gift. I'm going to bless them and I'm going to presuppose marriage, and I'm going to say to them, be fruitful and multiply. So not just marriage is good, children are good. Now think about, think about what is said here, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. We, we, today we have some conception, some of us maybe, we have some conception of how big the earth is. Think about this, this task that's given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why is God saying that? I think if, if, we were to, if we were to have the opportunity to say, God, why did you tell them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Because I want my character brought to bear in every corner of creation. Because I want those who bear my image and likeness to inhabit every corner of this massive cosmic temple that I've constructed so that they can bring to bear my, my, my authority, my goodness, my love, my concern for all creation. They're to execute it for me. That's why you need to fill the earth. And this, this kind of idea, I think, is later reflected when the Lord gets frustrated with the Israelites over in Numbers 14. I mean, just, just, just a brief summary of the story here. God puts them in this garden with this task to fill the earth, right? To, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the, they get kicked out of the garden. So God eventually starts over with Israel. And he, he, after he's taken Israel out of Egypt, he puts them in the land of Israel. And the task is the same as, as the one given to Adam. Expand the borders of Eden, uh, I'm sorry, of Israel, the new Eden, and fill the earth with my glory as my image bearers. And they eventually get kicked out of the land of Israel just like uh, Adam and Eve had gotten kicked out of, the, out of the garden. But you remember, on the way to the land of promise, uh, when the Lord had said to them, go up and take the land, and they send these spies, and the spies come back with a bad report, and so the Lord, he's ready to destroy Israel, and Moses intercedes, and the Lord says, okay, Moses, I'll show mercy to them because of your intercession and because of your concern for my glory. And he says, but as I live, 
all the earth will be filled with my glory. What he's saying is, this is my purpose from creation, and this is my purpose now in taking Israel into the land. My purpose is to fill the world, Numbers 14, 21, with my glory. That's why they're to be fruitful and multiply, and subdue the earth. Now, uh, let, me, let me make another observation or two about be fruitful and multiply. This means they're going to have to get along with each other, right? It means they're going to have to cooperate with one another. If they're going to be fruitful and multiply, neither one of them has the ability to do that on their own. In order for them to be fruitful and multiply, both the man and the woman are vital to the miracle of human reproduction. This, this makes both man and woman necessary to God's purpose in creation. You, neither one of them is disposable. In this miracle of what's going to happen, God is going to bring the man and the woman together in marriage, and um, the, the, the discrete parts of their bodies, the organs of their bodies, are going to come together in such a way that their bodily organs function together to do something that they could not do apart from one another, namely, produce children. And the miracle of life is going to come from the union of the man and the woman, one flesh in marriage, enabling them to be fruitful and multiply. So according to the Bible's story, if you don't have that, I mean, I, you know, you can, do all, you can do whatever you want with the word marriage, but in, in the Bible's framework, if you don't have the potential for life to be produced, you don't have marriage. And if you don't have the potential for life to be produced because you've got male organs and female organs, you can call it what you want, but it's not human reproduction. It's not the one flesh union that brings about life. So, you know, you can, you can rob words of their meaning. You can degrade the language so that they don't refer to things that actually correspond to reality and say that, let's say, a union of a man and a man. You can refer to that however you want, but it's not a marriage because it can't produce life. And it's not, it's not corresponding to the story of the world that's given to us in the Bible. It's a little bit like saying, I think what I want to do is try to make the story better. So the way that I'm going to make the story better is I'm going to make The Hobbit the first volume of the Harry Potter series. We would all say, that's stupid. That's never going to work, right? God couldn't say to a man and a man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's just not going to work. And, and you know, our culture, is, it's, it's like it's the, the extraordinary inarticulacy of our culture is even reflected in Bill Nye, the science guy, who a few years ago on his show, he, he does this thing about how it's chromosomes that determine whether you're a boy or a girl. And whatever your chromosomes are, that's the way it's going to come out. And now, can't say that anymore because the times have changed. The evolving standards of decency have mutated, and so that's no longer a scientific statement to make. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So again, reign. Uh, I've, I've already alluded to Genesis 2, 18. Uh, let me take you down to what happens. Well, th there's a couple of other things I've got to do on the way here. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 are complementary accounts of the creation of the universe. 
I'm sure you've read them, and I'm sure somebody has pointed out, these things look like they're contradictory. Well, okay, fine. Uh, but there were a lot of people that read them for a long time and had no trouble with the apparent discrepancies between them. And there are a lot of valid ways of accounting for those discrepancies. So let, I don't think we have to get hung up on those things. Look at Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Okay, so uh, the word for form there is this Hebrew term that's used to describe what a potter does. And, and it's like God the potter has scooped up some dust and then he puts it on the potter's wheel and he forms the man. And then look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him. Uh, the, the word for put here is not, it's not what you would expect. It's actually a word that, me, that can mean it looks like he caused him to rest. The Lord God took the man and caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He caused him to rest, to work it and keep it. The two things he's to do, work and keep, um, these are the two ways that the Levites' duties are described at the tabernacle. They're to work and keep, or sometimes it'll be rendered serve and guard. Um, but the man is to work the garden, and I think kind of inherent in this idea of working the garden is cause it to produce food so that you can provide for these people that you're responsible for, like this woman and the offspring that are going to come from your union with this woman. And then, so work it and then keep it, protect these people, protect the garden, protect the woman, protect the offspring. The man is to provide, he's to protect and then we've noted 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Look down at 2.22. We're, we're moving very quickly here. I apologize to you for that, but it's, it's you know, a function of how much time we have. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. In the Bible's creation account, um, you got different materials that produce the man and the woman. The man is made out of the dust. The woman is made out of the rib. And then different creational processes the man is formed like a, pot, like a potter, shapes pottery. The woman, there's a footnote on the ESV word made there in 2.22. You look down in the lower margin, it says Hebrew, built. This, this word is the word used for what construction workers do. You know, they, they build things, they stack stone on stone, or they, they somehow affix pieces of wood or other material together. So God shaped the man like a potter does, his, his pottery. He built the woman like a construction worker does. Different materials, different processes, alike in the image and likeness of God. So our, our story has a way to account for the, the real perceived, the actual differences between man and woman. Differences that are good. Differences that are intended for the, by the Creator for the good of the world. The secular story wants to deny all these differences. And then, uh, this, this, what happens next when the Lord brings the woman to the man? This is, this is beautiful. It always humbles and reproves me. It always makes me think I need to be more poetic with my wife. Because the man's first response on seeing this woman is this phenomenal statement of poetry that is biologically true, theologically profound, and, and just searchingly glorious. It's like he's been surveying all of these 
animals, right? And he's been naming all these animals. And, and if we had more time, we could look at the way that God names what he creates in Genesis 1. And then it's like he delegates that authority to the man. And God continues to create, but now the man is exercising the creator's authority over God's creation by naming the animals. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. She was taken out of him and flesh of my flesh. The Lord had closed up the place with with flesh there in verse 21. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Everything that I am as a human being, she is as a human being. And then, after that statement of solidarity and equality, this is is one of those things that um, some of our contemporaries, they they just act like they don't have the intelligence and the sophistication of understanding to, to embrace an idea like this. But what the Bible is telling us is that within the solidarity and equality, there's also a hierarchy. She, he names her. He exercises the same authority over the woman that he had exercised over the animals. She shall be called woman. And if we were looking at this in Hebrew, we would see that the man here is referred to as Ish, and the woman is going to be referred to as Isha. So the English equivalents that are used here, man and woman, right? The woman word built off the man word. It's the same way it's working in Hebrew. And I I think that in the development of the English language, Um, That's an outworking of the influence of the Bible on our culture, an influence that's now people are trying to reject and oppose and and eradicate from the culture. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, solidarity, equality. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, authority, hierarchy, and yet no sin has entered the world. This is a perfect, pristine, righteous authority this is another thing that our culture, our culture acts like it doesn't have the imagination to, to conjure this, but I think we really do. Sometimes people talk as though if you're going to have authority, you're going to have oppression. But if sin hasn't entered the world, and, and we all have this sense of things are not the way they ought to be. We all have this sense of why can't we attain perfect goodness? And, and the Bible is telling us there was a time There was a time when you could have authority with no oppression. You could have authority and no inhibition or fear. And then look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is instituted in the Garden of Eden prior to sin as part of the original creation, and that's why it's sometimes referred to as a creational ordinance. It's part of the way that God built the world. And notice what happens there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Adam doesn't have a father and his mother. So what's just happened between Adam and Eve is being taken as normative for all people in all times and all places. A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 is astonishing to us. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Neither one feels any fear that the other is going to take more than wants to be given. Neither one feels any fear that the other is going to look in a way that they don't want to be seen. Neither one feels any fear that they're going to be mocked, 
that they're going to be uh, perceived as somehow undesirable. There, there's absolutely no inhibition, no, no pause. Perfect freedom. And this comes from holiness. This comes from the fact that sin has not yet entered the world. Now, in my few moments remaining, I want to tell you about two guys that object to this story. One of them is a man named Peter Enns. And uh, you may have heard his name. He's, a, he's an Old Testament scholar who's trying to convince people that uh, there was no historical Adam, that humani- humanity has evolved, and, and uh, the Bible doesn't treat Adam as all that important, and so on and so forth. He, what he's trying to do is create a synthesis between the Bible and evolutionary theory, but his synthesis really looks like this. We're going to take the Bible, and we're going to put it under evolutionary theory. That's, that's really what he's doing. He's, he's subjugating the Bible's account to what the scientists argue. And, and so Enns argues that um, the Bible doesn't present uh, Adam's sin that we would read about here in Genesis 3 as being all that significant for all of humanity. To which I would say this, okay, Peter. And he even, he, you know, he even says things like... Um, um, there's, there's no indication in the Bible that all people in all places are affected by the sin of Adam. To which I want to say, all right, where are the people living naked and unashamed in a pristine garden? Where are the people who still get to live in the Garden of Eden and they have no fear of being seen in ways they don't want to be seen? Where, where are those people, Peter? And, and the fact is that they don't exist. They don't exist. And yet, uh, there are other ways that I think we could say everywhere all people do indicate that, that the way that God has created the world, they're actually experiencing the outworkings of that. So that's one of the guys I wanted to tell you about. The other guy is a guy named um, Matthew Vines. And what Matthew Vines wanted to do, yeah, he, he wrote this book, and uh, he wanted to reconcile same-sex marriage with the Bible's teaching. And so what he said was, there's no indication, it's a really similar argument to ends. There's no indication that this, this vaunted complementarity that, that I've been pointing to, you know, this complementarity between uh, the man and the woman, there's no indication that that is intrinsic to or necessary to marriage. To which I say, okay, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Vines, but um, actually there's somebody relatively important who did indicate that there's something significant about complementarity and marriage. And, and I would invite you to see this in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees, they've come to Jesus, and they're asking him to interpret um, a passage in Deuteronomy about divorce for them. And in his, in his response to their question, Jesus refers to the passages we've just been looking at. N- Matthew 19:4. he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And if we were looking at this in Greek, we would see that the phrase that Jesus uses when he says made them male and female is the exact Greek expression from Genesis 1.27. Um, you know, he, he created man in his own image. In the Im- image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That Greek expression, when they translated Hebrew into Greek, is the exact expression Jesus uses. So he's referencing Genesis 1.27. And then verse 4 there, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, then we got the quotation, verse 5, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There, Jesus quotes 
Genesis 2.24. So do you see what Jesus did? The first thing that I want to note here is Jesus attributes the words of Genesis 2.24 to the Creator God. Jesus is telling us it's not just Moses saying Genesis 2.24. It's not just the narrator making that comment. It's God drawing the conclusion from what happened between Adam and Eve about marriage. Second, you see what Jesus did with Genesis 1.27, male and female, he created them, and Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus just said the complementarity in the created order, Genesis 1.27, is intrinsic to marriage, Genesis 2.24, and he brought them two to, the, the, the two together. Now, in the big story of the Bible, you know what happens. Um, that unashamed nakedness is soon lost as a result of sin. And there's a lot we could say about what happens when God uh, introduces judgments, when He speaks judgments over first the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. But the most important thing, I think, in that passage is that God promised that the serpent would have his head crushed by, one, by a seed of the woman, which it's interesting the seed of the woman is only going to happen if the man and the woman are fruitful and multiply. So it's necessary for them to fulfill their created function that God gave to them in order for redemption to come about. And then the Old Testament traces the line of descent of the seed of the woman down to Abraham. God makes these promises to Abraham that are going to overcome the curses that he spoke in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And then we trace the line of descent of Abraham down to Judah, and then from Judah down to David, and then from David through his line of kings, ultimately to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And eventually, after Jesus gives his life to save his people, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says in Ephesians 5.32, having discussed marriage, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And, and I think the, the, the correct conclusion to draw from what Paul says here is the reason God built male and female into creation and the reason that God made it so that there would be this, this creational ordinance, this institution of marriage in creation is so that we would have categories of understanding the relationship between Jesus and those He saves. And, and I think this is why people say, correctly, marriage is a gospel issue. Marriage is a gospel issue because this is the way that God built the world so that we would have a context for understanding the relationship between Jesus and the church. I am out of time. I would love to discuss a lot of this further with you. I'd love to take questions. We don't have any time for that. Um, um, th th there is so much more that we can say, but I just want to conclude on this note. Do you realize how privileged you are to be a human being? You bear the image and likeness of the living God charged with the responsibility of filling all creation with the, 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 the knowledge, the experience of His character and His glory. And in marriage, you have the opportunity to live out a, a mini-drama, a small-scale expression of this love relationship between Christ and the church, which is the true story of the whole world. Let's pray.
Father, who are we that you should give us such an opportunity? Lord, we are but dust. And Father, we, we so seldom begin to imagine what it is that you've put, it, put us here for. And we so often pursue our own paltry little pitiful versions of what life is about. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent of our sin, help us to cultivate an understanding of who we are and why we're here, and Lord, help us to be people who who have understood and embraced the big story of the Bible and who live in ways that are pleasing to you. And Lord, we ask that this would be that Christ might be known, that his salvation might be known, that people would see husbands laying down their lives for their wives and wives gladly accepting and embracing the leadership and the authority of their husbands so that all the world might see the beauty of Christ giving himself for the church and the church loving and and serving her king. Make it so in our lives, we ask, for the glory of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.